I think this is it. We'll see. Um, what the, the spirit behind? The, hey, buddy, am I doing this right? Um, the spirit behind the class is that conversational apologetics thing is extremely important. And that book, Tactics. Um, I mean, this might be a little bit of hyperbole, but if I had to leave my kids with two books, it'd be the Bible and Tactics, right? Because, yeah, there's a bunch of doctrine and teaching and good stuff that you need to know for life in the Bible uh, and your relationship with God and other people and etc. But if you don't know how to share that faith and that message with others, then we might be falling a little bit short. Um, so, again, that's a little bit hyperbole. I don't, you know, don't want to put the book Tactics on a pedestal, but it's very, very useful, right? But I don't want to just spend an hour, hour and a half reiterating what has already been laid out so well. Um, so it's why I'm, I'm kind of forcing that as, as required reading because I don't have anything to add to that. You know, So get, get the art of the, the hand-to-hand combat, so to speak, from the book. It, it's, it's really good. It's really easy to digest, and I promise you, you can do this stuff. But what we're trying to do with the rest of the time is 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 get raise awareness on all the stuff that goes into say Christian philosophy and theology and you know uh, which, which we call apologetics. Like I, I want you to I want you to be aware of the weight of evidence that is on your side, so that you have the confidence to engage in those conversations. Not just because you know certain tactics. But because you have that confidence. So, so again, allowing these lectures to kind of, or you know, whatever you want to call these things, wash over you and just give you a sense of, of, of awe about the evidence that Christianity has. We do not check our brain at the door when we come to church on Sunday. Right? We believe these things for a reason, and there's good reasons. So I digress. Make sure you're reading the book. That's where the conversational apologetics is being taught. The, the, the monologue, dialogue section of class is, is, is just to, to raise awareness and kind of tour guide things. We're driving through a bus, and I'm like, hey, that's cool. Uh, you know, make sure you've heard of this. You know, pay attention to that. And we're, st- we're just going, right? We can't possibly cover all of this. But, um, but we can raise a lot of awareness. Okay. I digress. Coming from last week, anything on anybody's heart? Anything they heard that they didn't like or uh, that they did like or challenged them in a new way or just anything at all? What's on your heart coming in from last week? Don't free rise. Tell me what you mean. Uh, from chapter, is that from chapter 1 or, or chapter 2? What do you mean by that? Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, Darren. What do you mean by that? <laughs> Dale, you come up here and sit next to me. I... No free rides. That means. I mean, you come to the conclusion. <laughs> no free rides means it's up to them to support their claims. We don't have to defend the gospel to prove that their claims are wrong. We just have to be able to defend the gospel to what we believe is right and let them prove what they think is right. With the preponderance of the evidence of their theology, it's not theology, whatever it is, mm-hmm. stuff. Yep. Their story. Yeah, it's their responsibility to prove what they're saying makes sense. That's right. Not mine. They carry the burden of proof. Mm-hmm. Faith. Mm-hmm. 
And the truth is on our side. We don't need to be anxious. We don't need to be scared. We just just relax and just surf that conversation. Uh, Yeah, I think our natural default is just to immediately defend the truth. You know? And I know for me that that isn't me. I'm not an aggressive, outgoing person, but in my spirit, that's what I'm I'm doing, and I hear a lot of other Christians do the same. And then it just becomes this thing. Yeah. Each person trying to prove their point and then creating dissension. And that's, you know, that's kind of how the tactics book kind of starts out as it gets into it is how do you sidestep some of those obstacles but still move the conversation? I like the, one second, I like that, um, I think it was something on one of Bob's slides, but uh, I think the phrase was gracious confrontation. And I was like, oh, that should be trademarked or something. Like, that's, that's pretty good. What were you going to say? Uh, so, the book tells you, well, most of the arguments that you're going to hear are slogans from mm-hmm. um, the anti-Christian world. Cheap, shallow talking right. points, yeah. So they, they give you that, but then he turns right around and gives you four slogans to use because... I'm too stupid to actually be smart enough to carry on a, a, a logical conversation with someone. So I'm going to revert now to slogans. Like, oh yeah, this book I read told me to ask questions. Like, so I'm just like, so why does why is that important? So now I'm I'm and I know we're still in the beginning of the book and everything, but that's my that's my concern is like that uh, I'm just going to learn new slogans to try to catch people out. All right, now maybe that's true. Let's just say that it doesn't grow beyond that for you. I, I don't believe that, but let's just say that. I would point out that even as you were like, well, yeah, but I might just, you know, slogan, and, but I would point out that, yeah, but you're in the ring. Like you just stepped in the ring, right? So uh, let that be of encouragement to you. And, and uh, sure, Darren, one sec. Um, you know, something, uh, uh, the... I lost my thought here. Um, oh, I am convinced that the main reason society tells us that we're not supposed to talk about politics and religion is because the absolute worst feeling in the world, as far as I'm concerned, is that moment in an argument when you realize you're wrong. Right? That is the worst. Right? And nobody... And there's something about saying things out loud that causes you to reconsider them, even your own views. So people have very funky political views, and I'm not talking what side of the aisle, I'm just saying like not even logically cohesive. It's like that doesn't even hold water, right? But you, you've got this strong emotional conviction about that. Or, or religion, they'll have really weird views about religion that when you string the ideas together are so discombobulated, you know, incoherent, but it's like I don't, I don't, I don't know that I actually understand what you think you believe, you know. And not that you would necessarily say it to them like that. But my my point is, is that people don't want to say things out loud because sometimes they do, and they're like, "Hmm, that sounded a lot better in my head, right? That didn't, that didn't sound so good saying it out loud." Um, but but now you've opened it up, and and like like Gary was saying last week, there maybe there's a seed of doubt there now that we can build a conversation around. So even if you don't get anything more than a few slogans to combat slogans with, you're in the ring, brother. Hold, hold on, Darren was. Yeah, I, I just like how it, it, it drew us to you know, we're interacting with humans, right? So we want to you know, have a conversation with people. 
give clarification on that and also to determine do they understand what they're right. just kind of what you were just saying. And um, and to be able to respond to that and respond to that in a nice um, a nice, tactful and um, Winsome, he uses winsome a lot. Uh, gracious, right. All the things that are really hard to do, that list. You know, <laughs> be loving. Amen, yeah, that's true. Yeah. And, you know, something that's helped me along the way kind of carry that load, if you will, or that obligation of needing to be out and sharing and engaging in ideas that maybe you don't fully understand or have perhaps never even encountered is is within that bound up within that Colombo tactic um, is um, uh, just the freedom of becoming a student. You know, like if I bump into somebody, you know, a Buddhist, let's say, well, nowadays I know a little bit, but I still don't know much, right? I know where some basic boundaries are, and I, I might move to those boundaries to learn more about them a little faster. But, but early on, I didn't. I never felt like I had to go out and learn everything under the sun before I could open my mouth about it. I just would open my mouth and then see where the opportunities were, where the Holy Spirit was drawing me, and and becoming a student learning about their faith and whatever they believe and, and just being genuinely interested. And what I've found is, man, every other religion's a lot like Christianity. You, you can have some devout diehards. You can have some lukewarm, like, eh, whatever, that's what my parents were, that's how I grew up. Whether that's Mormonism, whether that's, that's Islam, whether, I mean, you have, you have people that run the spectrum within every religion. And you bump into somebody that says they're ex- don't think you know what their convictions are. You know, just just relax and, and become a student if you don't know anything about where they're coming from. And, and feel free to let them talk. But listen carefully because they'll probably provide you some, some serious connection points and some inroads to a, a deeper, more meaningful conversation. Joan, you were going to say? Oh, I was just going to bounce a little bit um, off of what he said is that um, these tactics are, are really great, but we can still have a of a attacking, snarky kind of approach. You know, we can say, what do you mean by that? Mm-hmm. You know, instead of like, what do you mean by that? You know, kind of. So we really need the it's important. power of the Spirit to help us to be um, gracious. Yep, and when you feel that prompting to engage somebody coming on, pray, pray, and then after you speak, this is the hard part. You have to listen and pray simultaneously. But, but you know, something we were saying last week is that the gospel message in and of itself is offensive. It's offensive. It's exclusive. Um, it's offensive, and we need not add to that. Right? It, it's a message of love. You tell them the truth in love, but to think that you're just going to spread that seed around and you're, you're not going to find anybody that bristles at that, uh, yeah, you will. Um, so, yeah, our job is to not add to it. And something I was going to say to your, your initial remarks is uh, I, I heard, uh, it might have been John MacArthur, he said, um, he said that the word of God is a, is, is a lion. Lions don't need defended. Just let it out of the cage. 
Right? Um, so, yeah, we don't have to defend. The truth is on our side. The, the, you know, the lion does not need defended. Just, you know, open the cage and let it out. It'll do its job. What were you going to say, Julie? I love like, the way he put it. It says that um, being abrasive or abusive, to gain an advantage by the tactic is Mm-hmm. You have the truth. Yeah, I uh, I was in a barber shop one time. There was probably about six chairs in there. They were all filled, and there were people waiting, and it was loud, and everybody was talking and having fun, and somehow a, a spiritual theological conversation kicks up, and uh, I hadn't started it, but but anyway, somebody somebody had some things to say, and I'm over there listening, and. Um, I finally have enough, and I, I kind of just let loose. And, um, well, if I may arrogantly say so, I folded him up like a wallet in front of everyone, right? But I went home. And I cried. Because I didn't show him the love of Christ, I didn't advance the gospel. I made some points and I put him in his place. And of what value is that? Right? So, in love. Share the truth. Share it. But do it in love. Alright. Woo! We gotta go, guys. Um, Okay, I'm gonna move. I'm gonna move. I'm sorry, but that was good. Thank you guys for sharing. Okay, real quick, I'm just I'm just going to touch this. Uh, I think it's in your in your handout. Apologetics doesn't save anyone. Please don't walk out of here thinking that. Apologetics does not save anyone. You can't debate someone into being a Christian. Jesus is a person to be known, not a theory to be argued. Okay? Christian apologetics is the theological discipline concerned with presenting the rational basis for Christianity using logical arguments based upon historical evidence, philosophy, ethics, and the sciences. Apologetics seeks to remove obstacles to to faith in Christ, refute skeptics, disarm persecutors, and strengthen the church by building up the faith of the saints. Okay, so today's topic, the Bible. Um, uh, What is it? Real basic question. What is the Bible? What is it? It's a library of love. <laughs> Alright, use somebody else's answers. Like your own. It's a collection of writings. Alright, fine. Anybody want to elaborate on what's on your paper? The Word of God. Amen. It is the Word of God. Given to us that we can know Him. Amen. And He used man to write it. Amen. No, that's, that pretty much sums up to this section. Um... It's 66 books written by 30 different authors on three different continents in three different languages over a period of 1,500 years. And it's got one single unifying message. Redemption. Right? Um, the, the, just the magnitude of that. Thinking about that, that many authors over that period of time writing in different languages in different parts of the world 
not as these things are coming about, these people aren't necessarily reading each other's writings. This is this is kind of coming into existence, and, it, and it's got this single unifying message. Like just the confidence of that alone, just like how this document that we have today that we call the Bible even came to be, is kind of spectacular. All right, so what is the Bible in the in the most basic terms? You know, Daniel hit it. It's God's word on on a macro scale. It's God's self expression. It's the knowledge of God. On a micro scale, it's the gospel. It's, re, it's his redemptive plan for man. Now that micro is bound up in the macro, obviously, and I don't mean to minimize or downplay the gospel. That's not what I'm saying at all. But first and foremost, it's God's revelation of himself to us. That's what it is. Okay? If the Bible was written by God, then shouldn't we expect to see God's fingerprints on it? Some kind of divine signature, like... Well, how? What confidence do I have that that thing was, was written by God or whatever, you know, kooky thing that, that you Christians say because we all know that, well, men wrote it. Well, true, and we'll get into that a little bit more a, a little later, but there's something that I, that I think does set the Bible apart from other books uh, and other documents of antiquity. And, and I do believe it has divine fingerprints. So here's a little... Um, I don't know what you want to call it. Um, is, there a, is there a name for the teachers or homeschoolers in here? Is there a name for the thing where uh, it, it helps you remember something? Like a way of organizing a thought so you can remember it easier? There's like a word for that, but I can't. What is it? Mnemonic. Maybe. Mnemonic device? Yeah. Is that what it is? Mnemonic device? All right. I don't know if this is a mnemonic device or not, but it's something like that, right? Uh, using your hand, okay? In terms of when you think about what separates God's Word, I think you can always remind yourself um, using your hand. And, and this is, you know, it's a little weird, but, 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 but stick with me. The pinky. P, prophecy. Right? It foretells future events. Now, there's, there's two aspects of prophecy. There's foretelling and foretelling, right? But, but right now we're talking about foretelling. There are, there are things predicted hundreds, sometimes thousands of years in advance, and they come to pass. Like, it, it gets its prophecy right, right? Um, next is the ring finger. And I'm, I'm sorry, guys. I'm gonna, we'll just move through these. I want to elaborate more. But ring finger, marriage, unity, Okay? Um, it doesn't contradict itself. It has a single message. Everything folds into that one overarching message, even though it was written by so many different people over such a long period of time in so many different places and languages. Uh, there, there's unity in it, uh, which seems, again, rather amazing given the, the parameters of which how we received the document or how the document came to be. Uh, next is the middle finger. Uh, the big finger. The Bible answers the big questions in life. Who am I? Where did I come from? Why am I here? What am I supposed to do? Uh, is there a God? If so, how do I relate to him? So on and so forth. But, but the Bible does that. It answers the big questions of life. Next is your index finger. Okay? It organizes its history correctly. You would think if there's a book written by God, it, it would at least get its history right, and it does. And we don't have the time to drill down into to archaeology today and the role it plays in, in apologetics. But, but routinely, consistently, still to this day, things are unearthed and found that validate what challenges that skeptics raised uh, you know, over, the, over the centuries. Um, you know, there really was that king. There really was that village. There, you know, so on and so forth. But, but archaeology continues to um, 
uh, provide evidence and support for the, the, the claims of the Bible. So it organizes its history correctly. Uh, the thumb, okay, uh, it, it saves lives. Now, everybody's seen the movie Gladiator? Right, the gladiators out there battling, and the Roman emperor, whoever he, uh, not the emperor, but whoever comes out, um, you know, and, and, and there's some controversy over if this is how it actually worked or not, but nonetheless, it's a good movie. But thumbs up or thumbs down, right? Do we let them live or do we kill them? And they let the crowd decide, right? The Bible saves lives. You know, if, if you know somebody that was one way, and now they're a new way. Doesn't mean there aren't traces of the old self. There's been a change. Something they're not the same person, right? It, it, it transforms lives. It saves lives. Thumbs up. The last is a fist, because the Bible is a fighter. It's a fighter. Many attempts in history to rid the world of God's word, like literal attempts to just get rid of it, and yet. It's everywhere. You just can't get rid of it. It's a fighter. So pinky, ring finger, middle finger, index finger, thumb, fist. Um, I, I think that you can encourage yourself uh, in the confidence that the Bible indeed has God's fingerprints all over it. It is the primary medium through which God has revealed his truth to man. It teaches us about God himself, about us, and about our relationships both with him and with each other. So, doctrine is defined as that which is taught. The Bible teaches. The Bible teaches us things, and we call those teachings doctrines. Now, don't let, doctrine's not a bad word. Don't let it scare you. You know, people say, oh, doctrine divides, and, yeah, you know, if you let it, I guess, but it, but it ought not. Um, Bible doctrine then would be those things which are taught in the Bible. The word doctrine is used 56 times in the Bible. The Bible teaches that doctrine has three common sources. Man, the devils, and God. So Colossians 2, 20-23, I was going to have us pull these up, but uh, basically we're to avoid the doctrines of men. And even the traditions of men, unless those traditions are consistent with, you know, God's Word, with the Word of God. But, but we don't follow a tradition just because, for the sake of it being a tradition. So, we're, we're to avoid the doctrines and traditions of, of men. Uh, devils and demons, we're, we're to avoid the doctrines of, of devils. That's, uh, that's in 1 Timothy 4.1. But God, that's the other source of doctrine. God, we are to rely fully on the doctrine of God. And this doctrine is often called sound doctrine. You've probably heard that phrase, sound doctrine. We, we hear about it in, in 1 Timothy 1.10, 2 Timothy 4.3, and Titus 1.9, and also 2.1. But sound doctrine... Okay, so what about theology? Well, we got doctrine and theology. And on the surface, you can almost wink at them and say, yeah, it's kind of the same thing. And nah, you're kind of right. Um, but I, I think there's perhaps a hair worth splitting there. Um, 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof. There's that word doctrine again. For teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Bible doctrine proceeds directly from the words of the Bible. Doctrine should be developed by a faithful study of God's Word. Attempting to, to dig out all the Bible has to say about a subject for the purpose of applying that doctrine or that teaching to our lives in the hopes of becoming more Christ-like. I, I had a teacher that used to always, always, always say, you've got to wrestle it. 
He was talking about the Word, the Bible. You got to wrestle it. You got to pray. You got to beg God for revelation and insight. And you got to get out your shovel and your pickaxe and, and dig. And you got to put that thing in a headlock and wrestle it to the ground. And if you're serious about it, God will show you something. Um, but, but doctrine is developed by a faithful study of God's Word. Doctrine begins with the Scriptures and should be allowed to develop its own logic as much as possible. Okay, now, for that to make sense, I'm going to counter it with theology. Theology, by its nature, puts greater emphasis on logical systems built by men. Think of theology as a way of organizing your doctrine. Okay, so soteriology, eschatology, ecclesiology. Well, soteriology is the, the doctrine of, of salvation. Eschatology is the, the doctrine of end times. Ecclesiology is the doctrine of the church. All the things that the, that the Bible has to say about the church, well, we can group that into a category called ecclesiology, right? This is, this is theology. Soteriology, salvation. Well, we all know what it means to be saved, but when you start thinking about those individual components and how they come together uh, to, to, to produce redemption, if, if you will, uh, there's, there's repentance, there's, there's justice, there's grace, there's, there's mercy, there's, I could keep going, there's, there's all these individual components that are kind of part of this system that, that are all required. If you remove any of those, you no longer have salvation, right? So all the things that the Bible has to say about that stuff, we group into categories, we normally put ology at the end of it, and, um, and now we sound fancy, right? But, but this, is, this is part of what it means to dig your well deep. It, it, you don't have to be a theologian, but if you're spending time in the Word, and you're aware of maybe some of these categories... Then as you stumble across a new truth, and not that new to you maybe, uh, not that it's a new truth, uh, certainly don't come inventing things out of the Bible. If, you know, Bob says do theology in community, <laughs> right? So, you know, have others around you to make sure you're not, you're not you know, stubbing your toe too bad. But, but when, when you come across something, it's so nice to kind of know where that goes. It's like, oh, oh, that goes here. Right, And now you own that and you'll never forget it. And, and as you're encountering others or maybe discipling others, witnessing, sharing, etc., and you're looking for those connection points between you and them to where you can kind of smuggle in the good news, um, you know these things. You're like, oh, oh, that's in this box on that shelf. Right? That, this thing that we're talking about and you go and you get it. So anyways, theology. Theology, however, can present traps in our thinking if taught in reverse. Meaning theology followed by doctrine. Theological frameworks can have a tendency to begin with the system and then go to scripture for support, which could introduce greater opportunity for erroneous interpretations. All right? Now I have a note in here in bold that says this is a caution, not a guarantee. I'm not saying, you know, I'm not saying theology is bad. Um, I'm saying be careful because one should labor to develop their doctrines and then organize them in a way that's most consistent with their convictions concerning sound doctrine. There's, there's going to be... Remember we were talking about essentials? That's the stuff. Those are the tent poles to where if we take them out, we don't have a tent to invite anybody into anymore, right? The essentials. But then there's the non-essentials. Like I would say eschatology is a non-essential. The doctrine of end times. Does he come before the tribulation? Does he come after the tribulation? Then I don't know. He's coming. Right? Um, so those are secondary and tertiary items, but, but we can fall into this trap of trying to put some of this stuff 
ahead and, 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 and basically we, we now have this pet item that we want to go and dig into the scripture to support. And, and you might find yourself off, off the path. Um, so I, I'm, just, I'm just raising that. A, a good example of this is, is dispensational versus covenantial. Is anybody familiar with the two camps? James, um, <laughs> give us a minute or two on, on, on you know, just a high-level overview on the distinction of those two things. Um, for dispensational view is that God basically has different ways to salvation. So, for example, the law. If you follow the law, you would be saved through following the law. But now we live in the dispensation of the new covenant where we're saved by the blood. So, not just God's change, but God has changed his ways of salvation. Yeah, I would, I would say that. I would say not necessarily different ways of salvation, but a different means with which he interacts with us concerning our salvation. But keep going. Maybe. So, I mean, I, that's fine. Keep going, though. You're doing good. So that's on one end. The other end would be God has had one saving plan. Mm-hmm. So the idea of the covenant of grace coming from Adam after Adam and Eve failed in the garden. God initiated the covenant of grace, which spreads... But we're still living in the age of the covenant of grace, and he had different ways that throughout the world that he used. What's the, uh, uh, different administrations? That's how with the Westminster Confession says it. Mm-hmm. So it looks a little different, but it's always saved by faith in Christ. Um, and Hebrews is a really good. Hebrews eleven, mm-hmm. saved by faith, saved by faith. They were never saved by the law. They were never saved by what this is. What this is. This, that's that's all that I was polishing earlier was just that distinction there that you're making so thank you yeah I, like for the record i don't mind saying it out loud i'm a dispensationalist i'm not going to die on that hill right but at the same time i understand the covenantal argument so i i believe that that there is a new covenant and it's better than the old and i believe that primarily because hebrews tells me that right but but the, the covenant so I, I believe that god interact he the way he has interacted with us has changed over time there was an old covenant, there's a new covenant. At a minimum, I think there's a distinction there, right? But a, a covenantalist is going to say, no, 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 the church is just a continuation of Israel. And it's just one long-running story. Well, I, I've studied it. I understand their arguments, and some of them are compelling. And I don't know that I'm willing to say that they're wrong. It's just my conviction doesn't lean that direction. So what I'm saying is don't let somebody tell you you're a covenantalist. And then you go and try to find all the scripture that supports that. Don't, don't do your theology that way. Study the doctrine. And then based on your convictions and what the Holy Spirit's showing you and prompting you, then maybe start to categorize them and classify them. But remember there's essentials and non-essentials. And we need not divide over non-essentials. Okay? So, um, theology in and of itself is a good thing, not a bad thing. Much of what has come to us by way of theology helps us to see God's truth with more clarity. Um, all right, uh, I want to touch on authority real quick. Good job, James, by the way. Yeah, it was a good job. Thank you, sir. Um, God exercises his sovereign right to create and govern creation by his word. Bob said something in the sermon today, and I should have wrote it down. Um, I got a meme that I keep on my phone. It says, the biggest lie you tell yourself is, I don't need to write that down. <laughs> Um, it, it, it had to do with, with God's authority and, and basically the power of his word. He holds everything together with the power of his word. It's his, it's his aseity. But, but 
it, its instructions, its commands, it, it carries the authority of the commander of the universe. Okay, that's, that, that's what I want you to grasp, is just the weight of this. Like whose words those are, whose truth that is, what, what, whose revelation that belongs to, it's God. And, and he is the, the commander of the universe and everything in there um, carries with it that same authority. As God's word, it is without error. It is inerrant. Now, I want to clarify something here. When we say that, that the scripture is inerrant, what we mean is the autographs. Now, autograph is original. And we don't have any of the originals today. There are no, there are no autographs. So, you know, based on what they were written on, papyrus, etc., the stuff just doesn't hold up. But we have, we have manuscripts. Manuscripts are copies of the original. So, autograph, original, manuscript, copies. Only the original autographs. The, the original manuscripts written by the apostles, the prophets, etc., only those are under the divine promise of, of inspiration and inerrancy. So I'm not saying that through, through translations, through, through reproduction, etc., that, that errors and things haven't crept in. We're going to talk about this in more detail a little, little later because, because they have. But, but it's no problem to acknowledge that. The degree to which errors exist... Are, are minute. It's, it's, it's almost a moot point, but, so it's fine to concede that. Uh, however, from, you know, from a doctrinal or theological standpoint, uh, I think that's important to know, that, that we, when we say inerrancy, we're referring to the autographs. The, the, those are originally inspired writings. That's what we mean. Now, I'm also fine with saying, and the text we have today is basically the same thing, and for the most part, it's inerrant because it is. When, when, when you don't hold me to account on, uh, well, did it say Jesus Christ or did it say Christ Jesus? <laughs> okay, if one manuscript said Jesus Christ and the other said Christ Jesus, that's a deviation, right? There's an error. Do we know who we're talking about? Right? The, the, the essence of the truth doesn't change via any of the errors that we do find in the Bible. So it's fine to concede that. But, ju- but just know, when we talk about inerrancy, we're talking about the autographs. Okay? Um, hit a few of these real quick. God's Word is the arbiter of truth. It declares slash determines what is true and refutes what is not. God's Word judges all moral actions, including rejecting it, which is the unforgivable sin. Well, rejecting the Holy Spirit, but... You know, um, and is judged by no one. Ignorance to or a lack in understanding of God's word has no bearing on its validity and or its applicability. Well, I'm sorry, officer. I didn't know the speed limit was 70. So here's your ticket. Um, ignorance is, uh, is no defense. So get in there. Develop your doctrine and then organize it. Organize your theology. Okay, so who wrote the Bible? Various men. Various men? Yep. Um, so it was written by men? As if they were driven by the Holy Spirit. As they were driven by the Holy Spirit? Peter, you probably have. Uh, 1 Peter 1. When it says the holy men wrote as they were moved by God, that moved same. You're right, just second. Move to second, Peter. Second, um, it's the same word as like when wind drives a ship. So, uh, 
Second Peter 1.21 For no prophecy ever came by the will of the of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. It's not just an emotional, like, oh, how about you write this? It was moved by the Spirit like a wind moves a ship. Yeah, um, and that was, um, I struggled with that concept of inspiration for a long time until I, until I stumbled across that illustration of, uh, when, I re- when I saw it, I, I remember, I think they were, were talking about sales and just the, you know, that, that idea of inspiration is like the wind filling the sails and, and, and creating Movement. There's something that's happening there, but without the ship and the sails, well, nothing would be happening. So this 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 inspiring, this this moving along by. So yeah, Second Peter one twenty through twenty one. There's here. Let's let's go ahead and spend a little time on on these. Somebody grab Second Timothy three. Uh, well, you guys have them there. Um, so. Just pick one and grab it, and, and whoever starts reading first, just tell us what you're reading, and then take the floor. Okay, 2 Timothy 3, what now? Uh, 3, 16 and 17. Okay, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Yeah, inspired. So, so Theo, God, Nustos, breathe. God breathed. This idea of inspiration is God breathed the scriptures. Now, it was written through men, and we'll get to that in a second. But, but, and, and uh, you just want to like tack that down so cleanly and it's, it's hard to do but, but I, you know, I think we'll just leave it at, at the wind filling the sails of the ship and moving it along that, but, but that's, what, that's what that word inspiration means is it's God breathed alright does anybody have Hebrews 1, 1 through 2 Amen. All right, and then uh, and then Matthew one twenty two and twenty three. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the pro- prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, Emmanuel, which means God with us. Amen. All right, spoken by the Lord through the prophet. And there's that, there's that idea again. We see it right there. Spoken by the Lord through the prophet. So by, and I'll, I'll save you the Greek on that, but basically that's telling us primary agency, right? It's, it's written by God. It's written by the Holy Spirit. The Bible is, right? But it's through the prophet. And, and, and the word there is, is for, for secondary agency, think like via, by way of. So the Holy Spirit wrote it by way of man, okay? And, and again, back to that wind filling up the sails. That's, that's this idea of, of inspiration. Yes, it was written by God. Yes, it was written by man. But God has the primary role in that. Man has the secondary role in that. And then remember about your, 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 your authors and your, your books and your languages and your continents. You know, by men written over this huge spectrum with one message, right? So again, those, those fingerprints are that divine signature. Um, this book is different. David, jump in. Uh, maybe a, an important distinction is it's not dictation. 
That's right. Um, you see the personalities of the different authors um, in the writings of uh, the different uh, books. That's right. Yeah, and that's exactly where we're going next. And, and you're, you're absolutely correct. It, it wasn't dictation. It wasn't like they had this ticker tape running through their head and they're just writing down or, you know, like they're in a trance and it's just, uh, you know, what, Paul, what are you writing? I don't know. It's in Greek. You know, like it, 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 wasn't, it, was, it wasn't dictation. It was inspiration, okay? So, so yes, writers as, as instruments, um, instruments of God. They're, they're human authors, and, and depending on the consensus of various scholars, you know, uh, technically somewhere between 31 and, and 40 authors, depending on who you want to listen to. I would argue that we're closer to 40 than we are 31. Um, but, you know, whatever, in terms of being fair. Uh, it was more than a few. Um, but, but writers as instruments... God used their individual personalities and writing styles that, that wasn't to be suppressed. That was, that was part of it. God superintended the human authors of the Bible so that while using their own writing styles and personalities, they still recorded exactly what God intended. The Bible was not dictated by God, but it was perfectly guided and entirely inspired by Him. Okay. Now, reminder, humanly speaking, the Bible was written by approximately 40 men of diverse backgrounds over the course of 1,500 years of shifting cultural norms. So, I, I, I remember going to a debate one time, and, and the, the skeptic or whatever, um, one of his main tactics was setting up the straw man that these were a bunch of dumb country bumpkins running around in sandals and robes you know, writing about things they didn't understand. And it's like, mm. yeah, no, Paul was pretty educated, actually. Right? And you can, you can start getting into that. But, but they, they had different backgrounds. There were different personalities. They all brought their own unique thing to the table, but still were under the influence of, of the Holy Spirit's inspiration. So just a few quick, for example, Isaiah was a prophet. Ezra was a priest. Matthew was a tax collector. John was a fisherman. Paul was a tent maker. Moses was a shepherd. Luke was a physician, etc. Okay? So these were real people. That, that's one thing that I, uh, I like about the, the Chosen. Um, there's a lot of things about the series that make me uncomfortable because, well, they're entertaining me and they have to fill in some gaps, you know? And it's like, hmm, that's interesting, but I don't, I, mean, I don't know. Is that really something we can hang our hat on? But, but what it's really, really good at is reminding you of these characters' humanity. I shouldn't even call them characters. Of these people's Humanity, they were, they were real people. Even Jesus. You know, there was a scene, I don't know what season or whatever, but Jesus has been doing his God thing all day, healing people and whatever. And, and he comes back into camp, and all his disciples and stuff are huddled around the fire, and they're talking, and they try to hit him up about something, and he's just like, I'm going to bed. <laughs> <laughs> he just bag bypasses them all and goes to the tent and falls out, right? It, 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 anyways, it, you, you get it. They, they were people, and I think that's important for us not to, not to forget. So, despite being penned by different authors over 15 centuries, the Bible does not contradict itself and does not contain any errors. 
The authors all present different perspectives, but they all proclaim the same one true God and the same one way of salvation, Jesus Christ. Faith in Christ. And we, see, we can find that in John 14.6 and Acts 4.12. Other places as well, but those are good ones. Alright, verbal plenary inspiration. This idea of inspiration. What, what does it mean? As, as I was just even stumbling across trying to articulate that well. It's, it's not easy. But there's at least four views. Um, I'm not interested in three of them, and I'll let you go look those up if you want. But um, I, I, don't, I think the others kind of fall short of what the Bible has to say about itself. Okay? Um, so verbal plenary inspiration. We, we don't have to spend a ton of time here, but, but verbal, what's that mean? The words, right? And what's plenary mean? All the words. Every jot and tittle, every all the words, they're all inspired. But not just the words. What the words come together to mean. Now, I, I pulled out the... I wanted to, I wanted to touch on this, and there just isn't enough time. But, but it, it isn't just the words that are inspired. It's, it's, it's the concepts, it's the thoughts, it's the idea, that it's the truth that the Bible is communicating. All of that is inspired. So it's verbal plenary. All the words are all inspired. All the concepts, all the truth, it's, it's all inspired. And um, I think if I was going to pull one thing out of that section that we're not really hitting is um, it's an authorial intent. Okay? If, if, if you get a piece of mail from the IRS that says you owe $50,000 in back taxes... Well, you can read that letter as though it's from the, the, the clearinghouse sweepstakes or whatever and that you've won $50,000. You can read it that way if you want. I think you might be missing the point, right? There, there was authorial intent behind that letter. Somebody wrote it to a particular audience for a particular reason with a particular meaning. That's authorial intent. The Bible, every book, has authorial intent. So when they're using words, it's to communicate a particular truth. Our job when attempting to study and interpret those truths is to get it right. That, that's, you know, that's, that's, one of, that's, that's one way of identifying a, a bad interpretation is it just completely misses the authorial intent. That's why they say context is so important. Context can really help you zero in on what the authorial intent is and then you can go from there. Right? It's, it's, it's extremely useful. I, I digress. Uh, verbal plenary rejects the Dalmatian Bible. Has anybody ever heard that phrase, the Dalmatian Bible? I, I think it's a great phrase. It should be in your tool belt. Um, and it's, it's one of those things to where when you get somebody to kind of own up to it and put a piece on the table, you can really, you can really work with that piece. Uh, the idea of a Dalmatian Bible is, well, I, I accept these pieces as God's word, but not these pieces. Or I accept these books are not those books. Or this passage is not this passage. So on and so forth. And it's like, oh, okay, so, so the Bible has spots of truth, right? Uh, well, who decides where the spots are? What makes you right? How do you, how do you know where the spots are? If some parts are true and some parts are, are false. And now you're, you're back to being in that, that driver's seat of, you're not the one that advanced the crazy claim. That you, you have the sovereign ability to discern what parts of the Bible are true and what parts of the Bible are false. That is a huge claim. 
if people will just make it casually. So you can just say, oh, so you believe in a Dalmatian Bible. And people are like, well, what's that? The spots. You, you, you know, so how do you know where the spots are? Tell me about that process, your, your, your interpretive process. Tell me about that. And now you're back to being a student. And they have to use words to describe this crazy idea. And now you've created the space for this conversation to move forward. Again, in love. Don't chastise them. Don't beat them up. But, but you know, don't let anybody get away with this whole Dalmatian Bible business. Okay? Um, uh, verbal plenary is simply a summary of the Bible's teaching about itself. Uh, verbal plenary requires intellectual beliefs and practical submissions. Um, uh, so, anyways, belief and character, basically. Okay, who decided what books would be in the Bible, and how do we know there aren't any missing books? Who, who's heard this one before? Sarah? What, what, how, how was it used against you, or where did you hear it? <laughs> it is a common thing, because you know, we just logically think, well, you know, it's a book, it's there, like every book has a publisher, somebody's making decisions, right? Where did we get this thing? Um, has anybody else heard it anywhere or had it used against them? Alright, this one is, you know, this one's a little shallow, but it's fun. Um, depending on how intellectually honest the person you're talking to is, you know, I like to say, well, we really only have two options, right? Um, either God decided or man decided. So, assuming there's a God and assuming that you know, if he created the universe and everything in it, I'm not seeing him giving us a book as like this tall ask, right? But, but set that aside. If God decided, then it's logically impossible for there to be any missing books, right? Because he determined what books he wanted included. But conversely, if, if man decided, if man voted, then, then there still would not be any missing books, because they voted on the ones that they wanted in and they rejected the ones that didn't. So it doesn't matter what path you want to take. Logically speaking, there aren't any really missing books. Now, there's so much more to this. But, but just to gauge where this person is in these ideas, you know, I'll sometimes use some of these kinds of things just to decide if, mm, should I take an extra 15 minutes or 30 minutes to, to, to go along with this person? Or are they just being obnoxious? You know, are they are they serious or not? And of course, you're praying, you're you're following the Holy Spirit, but but it's okay to use. You know, uh, I'm not saying that 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 holds the kind of water that you would want to stand up and use that in a public debate. Probably not. But just as a feeler, you know, just you can apply logic to some of these things and, and expose bad thinking. Um, all right, there are no lost books of the Bible or books that were taken out of the Bible or books missing from the Bible. Every book that God intended to be in the Bible is in the Bible. So there are lots of legends and rumors of lost books of the Bible, but the books were not, in fact, lost. Rather, they were rejected. So there are literally hundreds of religious books that were written in the same time period as the books of the Bible. Some of these books contain true accounts. Um, things that really occurred. So, you know, First Maccabees, for example, is, is a tremendous historical reference, uh, but it's not necessarily considered inspired. Um, I, I believe you'll find the Maccabees in the Catholic Bible. I think they include. But what's, I think I got a note in here on this, so maybe I'll repeat myself. But uh, you know, what's interesting is is uh, uh, Jesus quoted from every book in the Old Testament 
but none of the ones that the Catholics include. I think that's interesting. Anyways, uh, others contain some good spiritual teaching like the Wisdom of Solomon, for example. However, these books were not considered inspired by God. They weren't included in the canon. And if you've ever heard Apocryphal or the Apocryphal Gospel, so when you start talking about you know, the Gospel of Thomas and so on and so forth, Apocryphal basically means not in the canon, non-canonical. Right? That's, that's apocryphal. So, anyways, what criteria was used to determine inspiration? So, if we're saying only the books that were considered inspired, well, well how did we make that decision? What, what criteria was used? I think, that I list those in your, in your handout? Okay, so the criteria that, th that they used is, is right there. And you might be able to tweak these, refine this, maybe add one or two, take one off, or, you know, whatever. But... But there is a set of criteria, okay? And, and it's right there, and I'm not going to take the time to, to go through it, but I want you to have that confidence. This isn't some just random sort of... It, it was an organic process guided by, by God. So how, how and when were the books compiled? Well, the books of the Bible were never really compiled by any one person or group or council. Um, I think... What was the movie? Was it The Da Vinci Code or whatever? where he basically tried to present the idea that the Council of Nicaea was about voting on the Bible or something like that. I could be wrong. Uh, whatever. Forget that. The, uh, the bottom line is the, the Council of Nicaea was about the hypostatic union of Christ. Is he God? Is he man? Is he something else? How does that work? But, but no, no council, no group ever got together and kind of voted. So the Old Testament developed within a, you know, a relatively small community of, of, of the Jews, obviously. And, and it, was actually, um, it was actually translated into Greek, uh, we call it the Septuagint, uh, in about the 3rd century B.C. So about 300 years before Christ was even born, uh, 70 scholars took the, the Hebrew... Uh, manuscripts and texts and and translated into Greek. So we have we have what we call the Septuagint. So that that's essentially the the Old Testament on what that group of Jews believed to be the inspired word of God. That's the Old Testament. Okay. Now here's my note. Jesus validated the Old Testament when he quoted it. Um, now, there was a heretic, his name was Marcion of Sinope, and in the first century, he created a partial list of the New Testament. This is where the idea of canon kind of, you know, in terms of New Testament, kind of came from. It was in a response to Marcion. So about the first century AC, uh, or AD, Marcion held to, to many errant views, but, his primary, but he is primarily known for his belief that the Old Testament scriptures were not authoritative for a Christian. And, and you, you, you still have have uh, uh, echoes of this today, but we're, we're not going to get into any of that. He denied that the God of the Old Testament was the same God presented in the New Testament. So what he did was, was took a lot of the, 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 the popular New Testament writings that were circulating at that time, and he just started taking out the stuff he didn't like. Any apostolic writing that did not you know, agree with his theory, he pulled out. And, and he advances this list and, uh, of what essentially he was calling, you know, his canon. This is the canon. This is the inspired word of God. But it was, it was based on, it was based on heresy. Um, so I was trying to think of a nice word. To, but, so as groups in the church responded, um, what, what emerged was a list of, of uniformity. Uh, and that happened around the third century. So kind of uh, think, has anybody ever... 
uh, does anybody have a box of letters or anything that that their 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 wife or or previous friends or whatever might have written along the way, and you just kind of tucked that stuff away, right? I'm guessing that every letter that every person that's ever written you something is not in that box. But certain ones are special for whatever reason between you and that person and that relationship and, and whatever. But but certain things just hit different, right? It just it's like hmm. Well, the reality is this was happening in the church. You know, the apostles are writing letters are being passed around, but every letter that's in the Bible is not every letter that was written. But what we have today is the ones that as as it emerged. Oh. Oh, you've been, you've been studying this too? Oh, you keep this on hand? Oh, you've been teaching from this? Oh, oh, oh. And, and this, this kind of emerged again around the third century that there was uniformity without people even really discussing and talking about what books were considered inspired because they were all already doing it and using them. Now, they ran that through the filtration process of, well, what does it actually mean to be inspired? And what resulted is what we call the canon today. So, so nobody, no single person or no single council voted. It was, it was very much a, um, a supernatural kind of thing on, on how we got the Bible. And I would encourage you to, to, to dig into this and kind of look into this for, for just for your own confidence. Alright, so was the Bible faith, faithfully transmitted through the ages? Um, Yes, so I'm going to I'm going to real quick touch a few things. I've got the bibliographical test in your in your handout, I believe. I'm going to touch a few more, and then I'm going to play a quick video. We're supposed to be done at 12:15. Davis says no. Uh, if you walk out at 12:15, I won't be offended, but we might not be all the way done. Uh, all right. So first of all, legendary accretion. All right. True accounts don't develop legendary uh, qualities. Um, over long periods of time, falsehood can creep into the details of writings, corrupting them and even presenting their, their characters in flamboyant and exaggerated terms. Um, the Bible's harsh on its players, right? Things that are not um, uh, beneficial to, to the message of the Bible that maybe even undermines its credibility. Um, chain of custody. Uh, to ensure ancient texts have, have accurately recorded events and, and remain unaltered uh, through the ages, one must establish a chain of custody to show that A, the original autographs were written shortly after the events, and, and B, their extant manuscript copies have been consistent from generation to generation. And even before we had, had writing, um, you know, a lot of times you'll hear he'll people say, well, we've all played the telephone game, you know, and, and you say one thing and you whisper to the next person, whisper to the next person, and by the time it gets comes out the other end, it's mutilated. And they're like, yeah, that's, you know, the Bible is like that. No, no, it, it, you can say that there was a telephone game, that's fine, but even in, in uh, 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 um, verbal civilizations, you know, it didn't have the written word, it was, it was all oral, um, yes, they're passing these, these truths along. But they're not whispering, right? So, so there's a circle where there were, I guess, I mean, if you want to picture this in your mind's eye, there's a circle of the telephone game, but, but as, as it's passing through, each person that receives the message before they pass it on steps out into the center of the circle and to the whole audience says, X, Y, Z. Do I have that right? Yeah. Okay, back in, pass it along, next person, do I understand? So it isn't this, this thing that gets mutilated, right? So the telephone game is just, it's just silly, that has no merit, no basis. Um, 
The bibliographical test. There's there's a grid here. All right, so uh, spend a little time looking at that and, and kind of let the weight of that settle in on you. But but the bibliographical test is not unique to the Bible. This is the thing that I want you guys to know. All documents of antiquity, whether whether you know the Iliad or or the the Gallic Wars or you know, we can say the same thing about any of these. Well, how do we know that that the copy we have today is like the original. How, how do we know? How do we know? Well, you apply the bibliographical test. That's how you discern scientifically the reliability in terms of accuracy of the document of antiquity. And there's two, uh, there's two primary... Uh, Alright, um, if... if um, if somebody says that they have a, uh, I'm just trying to think of a way to explain. If somebody says that they have the recipe for um, uh, the, you know, uh, water from the fountain of youth or whatever, and they write it down, and then they give it to somebody, and somebody's like, "Ooh, well, this is this is a different letter, right? It's one of those letters you hold." This, this is useful information. I might want to hold on to this. I want to reference this later, so on and so forth. And then they make a copy or ten copies and give it to ten friends and so on and so forth. So now you've got all of these copies. Well, there's the original and let's say it's gone. We don't have the autograph anymore. And, and now where's all these copies? Well, how can we have any confidence that, that those copies are reliable? Well, compare them. Right? So if we, if we start gathering the copies that exist and lay them out side by side and start looking for the errors, if I have 80 copies and, and, and 78 of them say there's two cups of sugar and two of them say there's one cup of sugar, which, which, which one's probably right? Right? So, so this is the idea of the bibliographical test. But, but the two biggest things, that, the variables that are baked into that is the time gap between when was the original written and how far after do we have the first manuscript. Or from your point of view, I guess it would be this way. How, how long after do we have that first manuscript? Because obviously the more time that passes, the more opportunity you have for, for error, so to speak. And then the next big variable is how many copies do we have? Right? So this is where the Bible really shines. There's, there's thousands upon thousands of, of full copies, full scrolls, and, and even, even fragments. Um, so uh, another thing is attestation. So the amount of manuscripts and, and things that you have, uh, there's over 20,000 New Testament manuscripts, and again, they're not all full. Some of them are little pieces of parchment. It's portions of a, of a verse, so on and so forth. But we have gobs and gobs and gobs of manuscripts to compare. And scientifically, the way it shakes out is the Bible is somewhere around 98 to 99% accurate in terms of reliability from a historical document, a document of antiquity. And that is a scientific thing. I don't care what your beliefs are, it's a reliable document. Okay. Uh, furthermore, uh, i got early church fathers here. If you burned up every Bible and got rid of every piece of software and whatever else and it's all gone, you can re recreate about 95% of the Bible just by referencing the early church fathers' letters. And their, their quotations and writings and, and things that they were passed along in, in writing. So, in any event, I want to I show this video because I just really feel like it does. Are those uh, TVs on, David, if I just plug in here? Uh, well, uh, Dave, talk about something interesting while I pull this up. Uh, it's on. 
in the uh, I was going to take in a uh, New Testament introduction uh, textual criticism uh, class. Uh, we finished the class on Friday. Uh, the following Tuesday, we flew into uh, England. On the uh, Thursday, walked into the British Museum. There was uh, Codex Sinaiticus uh-huh. in the available Gospel all these numbers, it was a 16-week uh, course, summer school class, four weeks. So I had P52, P56, P40. I felt like I needed to pee all the time. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, seeing that from 1,700 years ago, and next to it was uh, a fragment, as you mentioned, from uh, first... Uh, First John, dated 125 AD. That's approximately within 30 years of when First John was written. And from a historical standpoint, that's like a tweet. Yeah. yeah. You go to um, the library in uh, Manchester University Library, uh, fragment of the uh, Gospel of John, dated 117 AD. Within 25 years of when it was written. Yeah. And, and other documents of antiquity just don't even come close. Okay. Um, again, none of this proves God's existence, right? But man, it starts to get compelling after a while. Um, okay, here we go. This, I think this just kind of, this is more Old Testament than it is New Testament, but I, I think within a minute or two, it, it, will, it will add weight to what we're discussing here. Or in tonight. I call these, we developed them, they're called e-mobile graphics. Let's go to it right now. Let's have a moment of honesty here. Everything we believe hangs on this book being true. A book that's been copied by hand in a game of telephone lasting century. Yeah, let's deal with that now further. To trust this book, you have to trust the people that made it. So, let's look at the work of a scribe responsible for the Torah. Before he can ever touch into paper, there are 4,000 rules he has to memorize. He's a professional responsible for every stage of production. Preparing the casket, creating a grid with pinholes and string, so each letter is in the same place. Each word reads with the same ease and accuracy as the original. Even the tedious task of preparing a day's worth of ink from gallnuts. He copies one word at a time, first saying, then writing, then saying it again. Make a mistake on God's name, he starts the whole document over. Every single letter, 304,805 of them, is written according to a prescribed set of strokes. He writes with a feather quill, by candle, with ink that bleeds and runs, and the letters must not touch. We're talking about a lifetime of backbreaking dedication, and that means this book is not just any book. It means that the words it contains, God meeting his people face to face, God leading, protecting, providing for them. Those words can't be a mistake. So we're forced to deal not just with words, but with the living God himself. These scribes were... Yeah, it's, it's, it's just incredible. And I mean, you start down that rabbit trail and you're like, my gosh. Um, okay, I'm sorry, we're going to... We're going to wrap it up, and uh, we're going to do our tactical takeaway here. Uh, 
All right, so here, here's, here's what all of this is basically boiling down to is why, what difference does all this make? Why, you know, we believe it, that's enough, who cares? Well, again, we're trying to engage others. So there is a big distinction between what the document says and what the document means. What it says versus what it means. Because this is a trap that they'll pull us into, right? Often skeptics want to challenge your views on what the Bible teaches. So assuming you're able to articulate your views well, they will often, you know, if once you start making a point and they feel it, they'll push back and they're like, well, that's just your interpretation, right? Well, everybody knows we can't trust it anyways because the telephone game has been corrupted through time. Yeah, no. No, it hasn't. Right. So what, what I want you to understand is we know what it says. That, that's not even up for debate. It's accurate. We know what it says. So can we please get on with the business of what it means and how it applies to your life and what the implications are? That's what this is about. So I want you to have the confidence that, 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 that it's the inspired and errant word of God. And it don't need defended. It's a lion. Just let it out of the cage. Alright, so we have scientific evidence. The, the bibliographical test, textual criticism is what it's called, of the Bible's reliability as a document of antiquity. The text we have today is the same text they had then. What it means. Once the debate has been settled on the accuracy of what it says, we now are clear to move forward with discussing what it means and the implication of God's word on our lives. David, you want to do the tactical takeaway? Thank you, sir. Oh, this electronic junk. Sorry. <laughs> and I'm sorry for going along. The uh, paper clips are for your uh, protection. Whoa. Okay. Uh, I was going to, if we had the time, I was going to cover it up and ask you to, but uh, if you, the red is what the fill in is uh, for. uh, Okay. So, um,. If you just want, and it's all in the book. I got it from the same place you did. <laughs> so um, let's pull this over, Chad. There we go. So um, <clears throat> Greg makes uh, use of uh, Colossians four two through six. Anybody have the King James or the New King James? You have the King James. He's a royalist loyalist. I, I like this guy. He did. If you're a King Jimmy only, yeah. Um, verse 5, please. Colossians 4, just verse 5 for our purposes.
Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. So, um, different translations give us it slightly differently. But that, uh, redeeming the time, it means to, uh, to buy back. Uh, to redeem is uh, when Jesus redeemed us, he bought us, paid the price out of the slave market of sin and paid the price for us. So it, there's a cost uh, involved. Now, the difference uh, with the word that's used there for some translate as he's done, so opportunity, and some translate it time. So, um, why? Uh, the word uh, chronos. Chronology is tick, 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 all the long day through, tick, tick, tick. So um, that, that's time as we know it on a clock. Uh, Kairos is a, a specific spot, uh, a, a specific purpose of time, so why it gets translated, opportunity. Th- this moment in time is an opportunity to talk to somebody. So the initial goal of any opportunity is to gather information. What about the cost? Um, It costs, uh, as we know, it's cost people their lives. But in our case, hopefully uh, not so until I'm dead. Um that I go, I go to uh, Bella's uh, house um, uh, she has uh, clients who are bedridden and, and things and I'm going to talk to Joyce who's about to, uh, to die I've given her the gospel when she's coherent um, and I'm about to go also see Mary Lou but when I arrive I go into the kitchen uh, to let them know I'm here and there's somebody there I haven't seen before happens to be the uh, their, uh, Russian Christian and he's the older uh, brother and um, I've got Bible in my hand because I'm going to read scripture to Mary Lou and just wanted you to tell, uh, I'm here I'm ready to read to uh, Mary Lou from the Bible and it was just like being in class uh, well da 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 is this an opportunity who are about the Bible and Christians and raised in a Christian family, raised in the church. Um, decision time. Uh, if I get into it with, with him, uh, I've got Victoria, his younger sister, who's recently gotten in, into Bible study. Uh, what do uh, what do I do here? It, time is uh, is going. If I spend the time, I'm not getting home for dinner. And if there's uh, one thing for men, right? Uh, you can call me anything you want, but don't forget to call me for dinner. So um, hmm, it's an opportunity, though. So I make use of the opportunity. I don't get home till seven thirty that night. Um, cost. What um, what price are you willing to uh, to pay 
so that you can share the good news or open a dialogue that could go in that direction. Thursday morning I walk into a quick lube, uh, two cars are ahead of me, I, I pull in. So what do I uh, presume is in the uh, waiting room? At least two people. Is this going to be an opportunity? One, one thing, um, years ago this whole ha uh, idea about opportunity uh, came up and so I uh, pray and used to uh, before getting out of bed, Lord, would you provide an opportunity today uh, to talk to someone, uh, to share the good news even. And um, I don't need to do that anymore because now I automatically look for opportunities. Two guys, you know, Lord, if this is, uh, can go somewhere, then I ask that you open the door. Walk in, two guys sitting. Now, how do you start a conversation? For me, it's just dead easy. Open your mouth. Uh, <laughs> I, I just, good morning, gentlemen. How are we doing this morning? I mean, does it get any easier? It, I mean, it might sound silly and stupid, but does it get any easier? Good morning, gentlemen. How are we doing? I get to find out whether they want to communicate or not. It's, you know, it's only 8.15 in the morning. So, uh, one says, uh, ah, yeah, okay. Uh, the other one says, uh, yeah, I'm uh, doing good. I notice what, and he says, I notice what three of us are wearing black coats. It's interesting. We Which, know we're disrespecting your time. If anybody needs to leave, we won't be offended. We apologize. Yeah. Right. It's my fault. Just fill in as you need to. If you want to fill in, uh, it's in your book. I got it from the same. As long as you've got the same edition as I do, you've got the same answer. <laughs> so um, he now says, uh, because of mentioning uh, black coat. Yeah, I'm. I'm I, they're, they're doing my headlight. One went out a while ago, and the other went out two weeks ago. So I've been driving with no headlights uh, in the dark. I'm lucky to be alive. This guy now gets up, pays, goes. I go sit down. Can I? I've just asked a lot. Is there an opportunity here? Did he present me with an opportunity? What would you have said to him? I'm lucky to be alive. What would you have said to him? Well, you've got to decide here what, uh, where you're going to go uh, uh, with that conversation. What do you feel comfortable with? What I went with was... Um, Lucky to be alive. Uh, you could have focused on luck, because uh, there is none. But uh, I said, uh, do you think about life and death a lot? He's lucky to be alive. Do you think about life and death a lot? Well, um, you know, uh, I, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm fine. I, I, I know where I'm going. Oh, wh wh where are you going? Are these simple questions? See, any of us can ask this. Uh, and that's what I love about the book. It's dead simple. And um, 
which is important so I can understand it and, and do it. It's got to be simple. So uh, I said, so where are you going? Oh, well, I'm, uh, I know where I'm going. I'm, I'm going to heaven. Uh, oh, interesting. How, how do you get to heaven? He knows where he's going. How do you get there? <laughs> I, he is a believer, but we went all over God's green earth. Well, there's a you know, prophecy in the Bible. Oh, really? Uh, how does that get you to heaven? Don't remember, don't let them go till they answer. What makes you uh, say that? What, what conclusion did you come to to get that? So, <clears throat> uh, well, Daniel, uh, he, he wrote 400 years before Christ, and he talks about uh, flying, and we're seeing that today. Well, that's, that's kind of interesting. Um, took up everything in me not to then go, actually, Daniel wrote in five, uh, 540, so it's a totally irrelevant to the conversation right but uh, so um, <clears throat> well that's in how does that get you to heaven well I mean it gives me like three or four other things finally he gets to faith now his vehicle's ready the guy's come in to take his money he's hearing us talk and so as, as I'm facing the guy here I'm watching how's this guy responding starts leaning forward on the bench listening okay we've got two <laughs> two for the price of one this is a good day so um, the guy now who's listening it, the, the worker there finally says oh faith in, uh, in the Lord Jesus Christ he died for my sins thank you that's how you get to heaven yeah, oh yeah that's how anybody gets to heaven the only way anybody gets to heaven finally yeah right I'm thinking <laughs> you, you've got all this knowledge and if I was an unbeliever if he hadn't come into the room I still wouldn't know how to get to heaven I appreciate the, that we, we need to know what we believe uh, Pastor Bob this morning of uh, the gospel do you know what the gospel is? I mean really and with a book like this dead easy to just ask questions. Notice um, it says the benefit to you is that it puts you in the driver's seat. Yeah, those open-ended questions leave you in, in control. Yeah. Uh, There's no burden on you and all you're doing is asking them to exp oh, what do you mean by that? E to explain. So if we move this up just a touch more And if you follow up with the second uh, question, how did you come to that conclusion? The benefit is it leaves you in the driver's seat. It, was touching on this early on, just reverses that second part. Is, I just very, but that second part is reversing the burden of proof. So the same way, you know, I always think of skeet shooting. You know, I, I've learned as I as I deal with people. Typically, what they want to do is they just want to launch feet like, ah, ah, ah. And, and when I was a little less experienced, I would try to shoot all those, right? And there's just so many feet in the sky, I'm shooting, I'm shooting, I'm shooting. And I've learned it's okay, just let some of that pass. You don't have to answer every one of those things. 
But if we keep asking those open-ended questions to where they're asserting their belief, and now you get to play the skeptic, and you get to throw the ski and make him shoot him down. You know, it's like, oh, that's how it works. I want them to explain this and explain that. And again, you're doing it in a loving way, but it keeps you in control of the conversation. Like David said, you stay in the driver's seat. And I think for, for a lot of Christians, the reason they don't do not engage people is because of what could be coming at them. Maybe they've heard it before. And don't feel equipped to defend the faith. Ask the questions, stay in the driver's seat. Dead easy. Can, uh, is there anybody in the room can't walk into a room and say something like, Good morning, gentlemen. How are we doing? Yeah, I'm careful when I'm talking to uh, the opposite sex. One, one thing I found with things like, and I haven't started reading the book yet, so part of it, but with things like this and some other some other things that are very cookie cutter, like you ask these questions, which makes them answer, it, it, it doesn't work that way in a conversation. And people can tell pretty quickly if you're just listing up, I need to ask these five questions. So sometimes you have to, it just has to be more, more mm-hmm. natural. Like I, saying how did you come to that conclusion? Mm-hmm. That doesn't come naturally for me, which obviously sometimes you need to go past that. But right. you just say, oh, well, what do you mean? How do you get there? You know, yeah. just right. And it, it gives you a number of other... The principle is open-ended questions. Right. So the tactic that you're teaching yourself is, I don't, I don't have to lead them in any given direction. I just have to ask a question that gives them room to talk. And, and, and the art of it is reading the room, reading the personality, and figuring out how to ask the open-ended question, right? But, but you know, if you've ever read a book on negotiation or anything, there's, there's a tactic within negotiation where it's just mirroring. You know, uh, somebody says, you know, if you want more information out of somebody, and, and you ask the question, hey, how was work today? And they say, oh, that was good. Well, that was an open-ended question, but it didn't really go anywhere. But it's like magic. If you just say to that person, it was good, and look at it, they elaborate. It's just what it's just what the human spirit does. It just it, it feels compelled to elaborate, and now all of a sudden you you are getting the information that that you were looking for, at least creating the room. So so the principle is just open-ended questions, and even if it doesn't come natural, training yourself to remember to just ask open-ended questions. It's the extent of it. It's, it's that simple. So, anyways, grab a copy of the book. All right, it's 1230 some. I'm sorry. This is my fault. I did this. I won't leave you in such a bad position next week, David. Um, oh, no worries. I can talk all day. Anyways, yes. Uh, um, gather information and reverse the burden of, uh, burden of proof. That's, that's the bottom line of your tactical takeaway.